big weekend for me, this. And to be honest, I've been more, more concerned about, about this morning than I was about yesterday. Because in yesterday's service, most of it was scripted. And so all I had to do was, was, was read what was written. But this morning, it's a whole church gathering. It's the first time I've preached at a whole church gathering. And um, I keep being reminded of that all week, which <laughs> doesn't make it any easier. But I was given free reign of, of, of what to preach on. And I was thinking, what, what subject would I like to start off with? What subject would I like to, like to use as my, my first preach as, as an ordained minister, as the associate minister at this church? And so the title I came up with, which I shared with Ian before the service, and he looked slightly, slightly bemused, is an investigation of rubbish. Now, this is a tribute to an old history teacher of mine. When I, when I was at school, I can't remember which year I was in, um, early on in one academic year, probably about September, October time, we were in a history lesson, and a kid at the back had clearly no interest in the lesson at all, and the teacher challenged him. She said, why, why, why are you so disinterested? And he said, oh, it's rubbish. History's rubbish. And she didn't respond. I thought she might you know, give him a rocket, but she didn't. But the next lesson that we had... When we came into the class, there was a black sack, a bin bag, sitting on the table. I almost did this today, but I thought bringing a sack full of rubbish and emptying it on my first morning might not be the, the, the smartest move. But you see, she had this sack of rubbish, and she picked it up, and she emptied it, and she said, so last week we, we established that history's rubbish. And I completely agree. I completely agree. Here's some rubbish, but it's also history. Let's have a look at it. And we went through this, the, the contents of this bin bag. She'd taken out all the sort of, you know, rotten vegetables and the old tea bags and stuff like that. But we went through it. And as we went through the contents of this bin bag, we could build a picture of the, 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 the household that had discarded this waste. We could tell about their, um, from, the, from the, some of the rubbish, the food packaging, we could tell their eating habits. We could tell how many meals they'd eaten at home that week. We could tell that they had too many sugary drinks. We were a very judgmental group of teenagers, obviously. We could tell um, their spending habits, that they'd gone out and, and spent a couple hundred pounds on clothes that week. You think, wow, this is a household with some disposable income. We could, we could tell, we, we could tell uh, dates of birth, because there was some personal information in there that hadn't been destroyed. We could tell that there was, there was a, a married couple and at least one child. We could t- build a picture through the rubbish that had been discarded. And it was a fascinating lesson. And by the end of it, by the end of it, we, we'd kind of we'd done this investigation of rubbish and we'd, we'd, we'd got ourselves an idea of, of who lived in that household and, and how they lived their lives and the sort, of, the sort of people that they may have been. What we throw away can tell people an awful lot about our values and about who we are and how we choose to live our life. That brings me on to Solomon. I can see you're struggling to make the link, and I can understand why. (laughs) I can understand why, because it's not a natural link, is it? No, of course it's not. Solomon is someone that we associate with wisdom. God said to him, you know, what what gift would you choose, son of David? What gift would you choose to lead my people? And Solomon, out of everything he could have said, he chose wisdom, which is a pretty smart gift to choose. He He clearly had some before he asked for it. It's a sensible thing to ask for. He chose wisdom. And he decided 
after we, we read in 1 Kings, uh, it's, it's covered in, in chapter 3 up to chapter 9, if you, if you want to read it later on. But he decided with his wisdom, um, once we've given a couple of examples of how he used it in individual situations, and he began to earn a reputation as a, as a wise leader, as someone who could be trusted and relied on. People um, would bring their problems to him because they, he'd earned their trust. He decided that his task was to build a temple, a temple which, which David, his father, had planned, but because he was constantly off at war and there were various other things going on, he never actually saw the temple built. Solomon, his son, built a temple. And in 1 Kings, in the beginning of the book, in chapter 6, we begin to read about this temple. And my goodness, it sounds impressive. We're given the dimensions of the, 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 the frontage, the approach to the temple. We're given the measurements of the entrance hall, the inner courtyard, the outer courtyard, the, the columns, the pillars, everything that made up this temple. You think, wow, this place would have been impressive. This was, this was a temple worthy of God. It sounds incredible. We're told the materials that were used to, um, to, to build it. We're told about the the bronze pillars, the ornate carving in the stonework. We're told about the the beautiful golden lamps, solid gold lampstands, dishes, even down to the wick trimmers that were used on the lamps. We're given all this detail about the temple, all this this gold, this bronze, these precious stones, that the work that went in to to carving the stonework and the woodwork. We're told about the trees that were specially selected and brought in from forests in, in other lands because Solomon had used his wisdom to build trade agreements with these places. So much work went into building this temple. And eventually, eventually, in chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, we read that Solomon finally sees the temple finished. And he thinks, this is worthy of my God. This is the finest, most spectacular building that has ever been. The Ark of the Covenant will dwell in here. God himself will dwell in here. This is, this is not just a temple fit for kings. This is a temple fit for God. And so eventually Solomon dedicates the temple to God. And it's quite an impressive read. It really is, reading about that construction project. And I'm always amazed when I read about things like that. And you think, this is before the days of cranes and JCBs. It took them seven years to build I go back up to the city now, I've been gone for almost three years, and there, there are 50-storey tower blocks, office blocks, that weren't there when I left. In that very, very short space of time, the, the skyline of the city has changed quite considerably. It took seven years for Solomon to build this temple, and it was built through blood, sweat and tears. And he dedicates it to God. But God's response is what fascinates me. God's response is the reason why I wanted to speak about the temple this morning. It's God's response that I wanted to use as the launch pad for my ordained ministry and my role as associate minister in this church because God's response teaches us so much about the values of the kingdom of heaven. Solomon has dedicated the temple to God. And God says to him, 
I've heard the prayer and plea you've made before me. I've consecrated this temple, which you've built, by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. But as for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David, your father, did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. And then in verse 6, he goes on. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt, and and they've embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. You see, the fascinating thing about God's response there is that he's presented with this magnificent temple. It's been a long time in coming. It's that the first time there's been somewhere where where the ark can can rest, where God can call his his place on earth. That's how special this was. We're so used to saying the Holy Spirit is within us and around us, and isn't that wonderful? And of course it is wonderful. But think how special this was. This temple was establishing the place where God would dwell on earth. That was the one place. But God isn't impressed by the temple. He's not impressed by the the, the ornate stonework and the the, the grandeur of the entrance hall. He's not impressed by the the beauty of the inner and outer courtyards. He's not impressed by the the, the bronze bowls that were going to be used for for sacrifice. He's not impressed by the solid gold lampstands and wick cutters and all the other bits and pieces that were, were made of solid gold. He's not impressed that this would have had a market value that would blow away any other property on, on right move at the time. He don't, he didn't care about that. He says, look, that's great, and I will dwell there as long as you walk in, in with integrity in my name. So long as you live a life that honours me. That teaches us so much about about God's attitude to to value, where he places value. Because we can read that and be impressed by the, the trappings of the temple, how fine it is. But actually, God didn't want the temple. God wanted the people. God wanted the hearts of the people. And we see the evidence of that. Because in chapter 11, we read about Solomon and how his wisdom eventually failed him. He took on 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Always they're women. No, no, it's not, it's not, it's not. See, Solomon allowed himself to be led astray. And God had said, don't take wives from foreign lands. They will lead you astray. But he couldn't help himself, and he did. 
And we're told 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines. And eventually the, the, the wives from the foreign lands brought in their foreign gods. And eventually in, in Solomon's palace, he allowed them to build altars to their gods. And there was idol worship in the palace. And so Solomon was led astray. So Solomon's heart was no longer full of integrity, keeping the laws and decrees that God had set before him. And so eventually, sure enough, in 2 Kings chapter 25, we read how when the Babylonians invaded under Nebuchadnezzar, the temple was destroyed. It was burnt down. It was, it was flattened. It became nothing more than a pile of rubble, just as God had said it would. You see, God didn't look at the temple and say, wow, thanks, that's awesome. He looked at the temple and said, that's great, but are you, are you for me? Because you, your heart, that's, that's where the value lies as far as I'm concerned. You can keep all that. You are valuable. For us today, we, can, we live in a very materialistic society. We live in, in a society that, that encourages us to want, want, want. If something breaks, get rid of it, buy a new one, a better one, a more modern one. But actually God says, I want you. I don't care how big your house is, what car you drive, what, what laptop you've got. I don't care whether you're an Apple, an Apple or a whatever the alternative is. Um, <laughs> I don't care. I want you. I want your heart because you are the one that is priceless in my eyes. This theme is, is echoed, this topsy-turvy theme of, of values in the kingdom of God, when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He didn't say, right, we need to find out the strongest leaders, we need to get the most educated people, we need to get the, the wisest heads and the, 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 the ones with the most PhDs and letters after their name, because they're going to inherit the earth to lead it, because they're the best people for the job. He said, no, 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 that's not how it works in heaven. Blessed are the meek. Those who put others before them. Those who trust in God rather than in their own strength. They should inherit the earth. In Matthew 18, we read about Jesus and his disciples. And the disciples come to him and they ask, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And before Jesus answers, he, he calls a child... Little boy, little girl, doesn't really matter. And he says, come over here a minute, come over here. And they come tottering over and stand there looking up at the disciples thinking, what's going on? It's going to be free food again, loaf and fishes, what, what's going on? And Jesus says to the disciples, he says, look, as this child stands among us, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that, I've heard that verse um, taught that it teaches us to, to be humble like a child, to be innocent like a child. And of course, there is some truth in that. But we should go further than that in our understanding of that verse. Because if we take a child and, and say, for instance, they, they come home from school and they, they say, I've got, I've got two best friends. One of them lives in a, in a 25-bedroom mansion. It's amazing. Dad's got a helicopter and, and, and mum's got the, 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 you want to see the, the Ferrari she's got. and It's brilliant. I'm going around there to play tomorrow. Okay, fine. They go to this 25-bedroom mansion and they get there and actually, actually it's really dull. 
The dad's out flying in his helicopter. The mum's gone off for a drive. The, the, servant, the, the, the housekeeper is cutting the grass. And there's nothing to do. It's really boring. It's a 25-bedroom mansion, but they're not using a swimming pool or, or the, 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 the acres of garden. The next day, they say, I'm going to go and play at another friend's house. Where do they live? Um, oh, you know that, that massive tower block with, with 300 flats in? Well, they're on, they're on the 25th floor. They've got a tiny box room. It's quite, quite sad, really. It's, it's really small. There's a bed in the corner. There's, um, there's an electrical socket where they, they have a little stove where they can cook things. They you know, haven't got anything, but he's one of my best friends. And they go there, and they play board games, and they, they make fun of each other, and they wrestle, and they, they have a brilliant time. They have a great time together. It's so much fun. On the third day, you say to the child, where would you like to play tonight? Do you want to go to that 25-bedroom mansion? Honestly, it's brilliant. If your mate's got a sister, marry her. Think of the inheritance. Go for it. Or, or do you want to go back up to the, the tower block and the, the single room to the family that haven't got two pennies to rub together? And the child says, I want to go up there. I don't want to go. That was boring. I want to go there. That's where I felt welcomed and loved. That's where I felt at home. That's where I had fun. I want to go there. You see, a, chill, a child's system of values is so, so different to our system of values. As adults, we would think, well, actually, I'd quite like to associate with someone who's got a 25-bedroom mansion. That sounds good. I'd like to get to know them, find out how they built up their wealth, find out where they go on holiday, if they've got any properties that I can go and stay in. I'd like to do that. I think there's some truth in that. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> but but that, that's kind of... We would, look, we would respect them. We would take pity on the other family. But the child wouldn't. The child would say, no, 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 I'm going back where I want to be. I'm going to the place where I had fun, where I felt welcomed and loved. And Jesus says to the disciples, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become like this child. You've got to stop looking at worldly values. You've got to stop focusing on, on, on what we would say is, is wealth and success because actually God looks at you and God says, you, you are priceless as you are. Anybody here today who's got low self-esteem, who's feeling a bit miserable, maybe you've had some bad news, maybe you're going through a rough time at work, maybe family is suffering, maybe you're, you're wrestling with something, you are priceless in the eyes of God. And there is no other valuation that matters. There is no other valuation that matters because God has the ultimate say. And he looks at you and he says, you're priceless. When the rich young man went up to Jesus and said, hey, look, I've, I've, kept, I've kept most of the commandments, I'm a pretty good guy, I've, I've, what can I do? I want to follow you. Jesus says, right, what you need to do is go and give away all your possessions, all your wealth. Give it away. That doesn't mean that we've got to respond like that. That means that for that young man, his wealth and possessions have become his God. Just like God said to Solomon, I want you to, to have a heart which shows integrity because you live for me. Because you, the most important thing in your life is me. Because the most important thing for me is you. It's got to be a two-way relationship, this intimacy, this closeness. I want that to be reflected in the way that you live your life. And so for the rich young man, Jesus says, go and give away your wealth. What he's actually saying is, go and get rid of that idol. Go and get rid of that thing that, that you love more than me. And then, then we can talk more about you becoming a follower of me. Jesus also told us not to focus on storing up treasure on earth, but to store up treasure in heaven. And I think when I preached here um, last year, I preached on that passage. And I said, what is the most 
when, when Jesus says treasure in heaven, what does he mean? What is the most important thing to God? What would he call treasure? What's the most valuable thing? Well, it's you and me. It's us. It's all the people in the world, all the people that, that he's created. That's treasure. And so when we build up treasure in heaven, what it, it, what it actually is, it's an echo of the Great, Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an instruction to say treasure, as far as God's concerned, is people. Treasure is the, the valuable commodities that we have around us, that we interact with every day. The people that wind us up, that irritate us, the people that celebrate with us, and, and sometimes we'd like them to go away, sometimes we want to be with them. People. God loves every single person that he has created. God sees you as priceless. And Paul, Paul calls on this, doesn't he? He says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't forget that. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Think of the grandeur of the temple that Solomon built. Look at, look at those, those chapters from 1 Kings. Read the, the dimension, the sheer scale of it. Think of the, the wealth, the costings that that, that, would have, that would have taken. Think of how much investment, how much, how much that was worth. And God said, I'm not so fussed about that. I'm fussed about you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You carry the Holy Spirit in your heart. The Holy Spirit is around us and within us. God wants to claim us as his own. But he won't force that. He says, I want you to choose me. I want you to allow me in, into your life. You see, often our rubbish is God's treasure. We look at ourselves and say, what have I got to offer? Why would he want me? I've been through that time and time again at Christchurch Stock and here at Billericay. You look around and you think there are so many people here who are more capable, more intelligent, more knowledgeable than me. Why would God choose me? We can do ourselves down. We can say, I'm not good enough. But if we truly believe God created us, then in effect when we say that, what we're saying is, God's not good enough. God is good enough, and so are we. Every single one of us is, is, is treasure in the eyes of God. So often our rubbish is God's treasure, and our riches are God's rubbish. I sometimes, I sometimes get asked um, what my what I imagine heaven to be like. And I always dodge that question because, let's face it, it's a minefield. We don't know. We don't know what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be good. We know that. But I wonder what they do about waste disposal in heaven. I wonder if, um, I wonder if there's any sort of a landfill site in heaven. It'd be interesting. I mean, waste has got to go somewhere. Will there be waste in heaven? We don't know. But it, what if there was? What would the landfill look like? You see, I reckon it would be full of, full of cash, full of diamonds and rubies and emeralds, full of ornate artwork and carvings, full of, full of maybe credit cards, checkbooks, in the olden days, I suppose, not anymore, <laughs> chip and pin machines, wouldn't it? See, the landfill would be something that we would look at and say, 
this is all the riches in the world. This is, this, what's he doing here? Anyone could, what, what's, what's happening? Because in heaven, that is utterly worthless. That doesn't matter. Because God says, do you know what? I've got the treasure. I've got the treasure right here. And it's you. It's you. That's just a landfill site. That's just a big hole. We're going to cover it up. We don't want that in heaven. It's you. You are the treasure. I choose you. God builds us up. God builds his church through us. We are the tools that the Holy Spirit uses to build the kingdom of God. Every single one of us, every single one of us is priceless in the eyes of God. And when we go out into the world and we might face mockery for our faith, we might just face apathy, to be honest. Most people just couldn't care less. You know, I, I, I had friends who came yesterday and I'm so grateful they came because they never go to church normally. And whenever I talk to them about my faith, they sort of, they're supportive, they shrug and yeah, whatever floats your boat. It's that apathy that we, that we face. That's, that's one of the biggest challenges to the church in this day and age. It's just the sheer apathy. People just don't care. But sometimes maybe that's because we should be bolder in telling them, do you know what? My church think you are priceless. They think you're fantastic. What do you mean they've never met me? doesn't matter. They think you're fantastic. And you, and you, and him over there at the bus stop, and that guy at the bar at the moment. They think you're priceless. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the values that my God attaches to the world. We are the treasure that God wants. He doesn't want the ornate buildings. He doesn't want the, the riches. He doesn't want the jewels and the gold. He wants us. Now, of course, that's not to say, I'm very aware, that we're in, a, in the process of talking about a new building. This is not a sermon designed to derail that at all. In fact, quite the opposite. You see, any church, any church needs to give its best to God. We are called to give our best. And if that involves taking a leap of faith and moving site and building a new centre of worship where people can come and through which the kingdom of God can be built, then that is what we have to do. That is what we're told to do, what we're commanded to do, to give our best to God, to honour him with all that we have, to trust in him and have faith in him. But we don't build a temple for our own glory. We build it for God's glory. Whatever happens in the future of this church, and I believe we've got a very, very exciting future, both short-term and long-term. Whatever happens, though, Everything that we do must give the glory to God, must reflect his glory. We must discern what he's, what he's calling us to do. And we should make sure that in our lives, individually and corporately as a church, that we honour God and that we follow him with hearts that reflect his integrity and his values. We must honour the people that we meet, honour the conversations that we have. We must honour our God in all that we do. Because God chose us. I want to finish this morning with, um, with a story. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a lovely story. It's from the Second World War. In the east end of London, um, there, was, there was this fireman. And it was during the Blitz. And he was very, very brave because going to burning buildings, uh, unexploded bombs, all that sort of thing, um, fighting fires during the Blitz. It was, a, it was a risky business. 
And um, there was also there was a nurse who uh, worked in a, in a hospital in the East End. And during the, the bombings and the, the tragedy, tragedies that took place, the awful things that, that happened, um, she saw the casualties coming in, saw some pretty nasty things, but, but served. And one day there was a raffle. Uh, sorry, there, there was an afternoon dance, or tea dance, I think it was. And um, there, was a, there was a raffle going on as well. And it was being run by a local hospital to, to raise funds. And, um, and this, this nurse, she was, she was young and pretty, she was asked to go and sell the raffle tickets. And this fireman had gone along, a couple of mates. It was a way to pass the afternoon, take your mind off the, the constant bombing. And uh, this pretty young nurse walks around selling raffle tickets, and he thinks, oh, well, I'm not that fussed about the raffle, but, yeah, go on, I'll, I'll have a chat with her. So he buys a raffle ticket. And they have the afternoon, uh, the, the tea dance, and then the raffle is drawn. And the number's called out, and the fireman digs in his pocket, and up there he finds his ticket. Oh, well, it's me, I've won. And he goes up the front, and there's a, there's a few gifts. There's a, there's a China tea set, and there's a, a couple of ration coupons, and um, I think. I'm hazy on that bit. <laughs> but there's also, there's also two tickets for afternoon tea at the Savoy. And without thinking twice, he says, yeah, I love those. And so the pretty young nurse says, oh, congratulations, there you go. Who are you going to take? He says, you. And so they go to afternoon tea at the Savoy, and eventually they, they court for a while and then they marry. And I love that story for two reasons. Firstly, because the fireman was my granddad and the nurse was my gran. I love that story. He won her in a raffle. It's brilliant. <laughs> but do you know what? The other, the other reason is because he walked up to the table with all the different raffle prizes on. And I don't suppose it was a, a massively impressive display because this was wartime London. But he walked up and, and he saw, he saw the, the pretty young nurse and he thought, I'm not fussed about anything else. I want to get to know her. I want her. And so he took the, took the ticket and he said, I'm taking you. And that led to, well, yeah, eventually through different things, led to me, I suppose. But <laughs> that led to a, a loving marriage that lasted li- a lifetime. And they're no longer with us anymore, but they had a happy, long, joyful marriage. And that's something to celebrate. And God looks at us and, and when we say, hey, look, I've won, I've won, God. Look, I'm going to give you, I'm gonna give you more, than, more money than I ever have done before. I'm going to give you more time. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you that. And God says, that's, that's great, that's great. I want you. I want you. I want your heart. I want you to make me as important to you as you are to me. You see, the values of the kingdom of heaven are so, so, so opposite to the values of the world in which we live. And I wanted to be reminded of that in the first sermon as an ordained minister. And in the first sermon as the associate minister of this church. Because it's it's a humbling message. It's a message that reminds me that yesterday was a great day and everything, but I'm still me. I still fall, I still make my mistakes, as will all of us. When Philip stood up yesterday, he's got an MBE and a couple of PhDs and various other bits and pieces that attach to his name, which make make all his emails go onto a second page. (laughs) But he'll still fall and fail and make his mistakes, and he'll be the first to admit that. As Christians, our humility, 
is so vital to the way that we live our lives. The meek will inherit the earth. God chooses us and God wants us to choose him. For all of our failings, for all of our faults, he wants us. And he wants us to share that message with all those out there that don't yet know him. So let's take that responsibility seriously. Let's make sure that that we hammer that message home in our own hearts and then go and hammer it home to those that we meet. That should be our mission as a church in all that we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for creating us and for choosing us. And Father, we, we, we give thanks that every time that we fail you and make our mistakes, we know that we can turn to you and repent of our sin and call on your forgiveness and we know that you forgive our sin. You're the only one with the power to do that. You're the only one that can, that can make us fresh that can purify us. And we know that the day will come when we will be purified. Our bodies may waste away, but you've got our hearts, Lord. So this morning, Father, we we recommit our hearts to you. We call on you to to inspire us, to use us, to build your kingdom here in Billericay, to go out to to care for the community, to provide for the community, to to do all we can to address the needs of, of people out there that don't yet know you. And Father, we pray that as we do that, through all the different missions and ministries that this church is involved in, whether it's locally or whether it's globally, we pray, Lord, that through that work, more and more people will come to call themselves children of God. Father, we pray this because we know you have the power to change lives. You have the power to to intervene. And we know that we are the tools that you use to achieve that. So we give ourselves to you and ask that you will use us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.